Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. September 2019 in Australia. A two-year drought had left the ground cracked, parched, dry. Wildlife thirsty for what little moisture was in the air. The worst part? Summer was on its way. The forest was primed for the slightest spark. And on a day like any other, lightning struck the ground and a flame erupted quickly taking hold of everything around it, swallowing up dried leaves and dehydrated plants. Soon, it swept across the forest floor and climbed up the trees, incinerating everything. Firefighters tried to stop it, but the fire was just too hot, too fast, and too strong. 33 people were killed thousands of others displaced. Millions of hectares of land destroyed along with the animals that once lived there. It was the worst bushfire in recent Australian history. It's been over a year since Australia went up in flames. And I've often wondered what happened to the animals and the land they lived on. How did the fire get under control? I'm Erica Vella, a reporter with Global News, and on today's episode, we find out whatever happened to the Australian bushfires. I remember the beginning of 2020 very clearly. Before the world shut down because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I scrolled through social media, mindlessly flipping through stories on my Instagram. But an image kept popping up over and over again. Maybe you remember it. An aerial view of Australia. And the country looked black, charred almost. On the outer edges, embers burned. It almost looked like molten lava. People posted this image and called on the media to pay attention. I quickly learned that the photo wasn't real, I mean, all of Australia wasn't burnt. The artist said the image is actually a 3D visualization of the hotspots in Australia. He created it as an art piece. And while it might not have been a real photo, the problem it was depicting was very much real. Large areas of Australia's bush or backwoods, which are mostly natural and undeveloped, were on fire and had been for months. Then, other photos surfaced of people running into smoky areas to grab whatever animals they could find as fires raged nearby. Kangaroos, wallabies and koalas, along with horses and livestock, all in danger. 
One of the first things I remember thinking was, does this happen often in Australia? I know that in some parts of the world, bushfires are expected. I needed to find out if that was the case here. So I spoke with Inspector Ben Shepherd. He works for the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. New South Wales is a southeastern state in Australia, and it was among the hardest hit by the bushfires in late 2019 and early 2020. I guess that the, the thing to note is the, the Australian bush is designed in, in some aspects to burn. It, it, it needs fire to regenerate and rejuvenate. Uh, but on a normal season, we might see around 250, maybe up to 300,000 hectares uh, of land burned. But this season would be an unprecedented one. To really understand the scope of the bushfires, I wanted to speak with someone who worked on the front lines and fought the fires head on. So uh, I've been a volunteer firefighter uh, for the RFS since 2009, when I was about 16 years old. Um, so volunteer firefighting has been you know, an aspect of my family for as long as I can remember. My, my grandfather was a firefighter. My, uh, my dad is still a firefighter. My younger brother's a firefighter. So it's something that was in the family. And as a, you know, as a kid, I'd watch my dad go off and he'd go fight, you know, fight fires and I'd be you know, in awe of everything that he was doing and I'd stay up late, you know, much to, to mum's hatred to grill dad every time he came home about what it was that he'd been through and what they'd, you know, they'd done. So from a young age, I was excited to be able to join up. That's Nathan Barnden. And before we get any further into Nathan's story, we should stop for a second and talk about what he just said. Nathan was a volunteer firefighter for the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. And he said that fire service is something that grew out of necessity and it's expanded over the years. You've got to think think of Australia 100 years ago and, and think of Volunteer firefighting and, and bush firefighting in this country has been around in a coordinated fashion for, for over 100 years in one way or another. And so what you've got to remember is back then, you know, our communities and our, our country was very isolated from the rest of the world. We were very much on our own. And, and so people, people did things out of necessity. And then one of those things that really you know, started to happen was was you, f- you found people, you know, people had to put, put fires out. It, just ha- it, you know, it was a natural part of our landscape. Fire occurred. And if you wanted to, you wanted to survive and you wanted to, to build a community, then you had to find a way to do that. You know, there is a culture of volunteering in Australia that, that I, I, is a very hard thing to explain. You know, I think we have, and I could be wrong with my figure, but I want to say somewhere around the 240,000 volunteer emergency service workers across our country... You know, we have a, an, an emergency services force combined of professional and volunteers that is, you know, larger than our defence force. And that just, you know, it just speaks volumes of the character of, of what Australians are. And I think you do it because if I was in that situation, I would want someone to come and help me. And if, you know, that you've just, you find a way to, to contribute in that sense. It's, uh, yeah, it's a tough one to try and explain. I, uh, I guess it's just who we are as, as Australians. I should mention not all people who work in Australia's emergency services are volunteers. There are some paid positions, but the majority of those fighting on the front lines are often volunteering their time. And as you heard earlier, Nathan comes from a family of volunteer firefighters. He's been doing it since he was a teenager. I mean, in in Australia, volunteer firefighters 
uh, particularly in the state of New South Wales, respond to you know, all sorts of emergencies across across the state. So you're looking at everything from house fires to car accidents to you know, to what we obviously had this summer, which were quite horrific bushfires. In 2019, Australia knew the upcoming bushfire season was going to be tough. We could see it shaping up to be a bad one, and we certainly uh, we certainly were right in that aspect. And you know, we've had um, we have had fires in New South Wales you know, of quite horrific nature before, but nothing to the extent of what occurred this summer. So we were looking at essentially um, one long band of fire from the northern northern tip of our, our state right through to the southern tip, and we're talking you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilometres. Um, at one point, you know, one particular fire, the Gospers Mountain Fire, was uh, at its you know, largest, I think, 1,300 kilometres in, in length all the way around it. So you're talking significant areas of our state and, and all areas that, that burnt right up to, you know, to our cities and our towns. So the, you know, the bushfire season started significantly earlier than normal in, in about August uh, in the northern parts of our state. Bushfire season in Australia varies depending on what region you're looking at. In New South Wales, bushfires typically start in September. In 2019, they started earlier than normal. But to understand why they were so bad this particular year, we have to go back even further. Here's Inspector Ben Shepard again. I I guess we could even go back... Uh, a couple of years earlier, where what we what we started to see uh, was the first signs of a drought uh, gripping New South Wales, and even leading into the 2018-19 fire season, there were concerns um, that it was going to be problematic, given that uh, we, we'd start to see drought conditions across some like 90% of of the state of New South Wales. Um, And then what we were fortunate to see, though, uh, in around November of 2018, we saw a a big weather pattern that just sort of changed it enough for us that gave us some moisture across most of New South Wales, but just took the sting out of of that particular season. Um, and, And it gave us a little bit of a quieter season. But then we didn't really see any significant rainfall um, after that particular event um, right through uh, 2019. Um, And then uh, we we obviously approaching uh, winter, uh, we were starting to get forecasts of of, uh, of another um, warm and dry, I guess, uh, summer. Uh, And that was culminating with a, a number of factors, obviously the drought, but also are strengthening what we know as an Indian Ocean that was going to give us um, uh, drier temperatures and drier, uh, sorry, drier uh, weather across the, the continent and also with an El Nino um, also playing its part, which traditionally um, uh, with El Nino events, you know, that leads to uh, warm, dry conditions on the east coast of Australia. So everything was starting to line up um, and then even as, as we started to move closer to the fire season itself, we started seeing fire activity through winter um, that we would normally start to see during spring and, and summer. Um, and then by the end of, of July and August last year, uh, we were recording in the vicinity of 1,500 to 2,000 fires in those months. And in fact, we started to see our first homes being lost in, in August uh, during our winter months. So, um, And from there, it, it was relentless. We saw on average each, each month uh, between two and 3,000 fires. So that was it. Years of drought combined with rising temperatures and dry weather. 
as Australia headed into hot summer months, this was the recipe for this natural disaster. And it was about to sweep its way across the country. But I wondered what lit this proverbial match to these fires. I mean, we've all heard the PSAs. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. So that had me wondering, how did these fires start? Were people at fault? I asked Ben. Predominantly, uh, the main cause of the fires uh, for the season was through uh, dry lightning storms. And on occasion, um, we, we were down to around about uh, 30, 40 fires on one particular day. And we had a lightning storm move through. And in the space of a few hours, we were back up over 150 fires burning the landscape. And the problem with those particular storms, they were giving us strikes in very remote parts of New South Wales. So we have a, a mountain range that really stretches from border to border, from north to south, that is just off the coast. Um, and we, we started to see lightning storms giving us fires in these very remote parts of, of our national parks. And the problem with that as well is when once those fires start, it's, it's obviously very hard to get uh, trucks and crews in there. Um, and quite often they, they require uh, the, the insertion via helicopters to, to put them in there to combat these fires. But once they're taken hold, um, they're very problematic to stop because traditionally where we'd see these fires move down into more wet valleys and, and, and river systems, they were all dry because of the drought. So uh, once they had established themselves, they went on to, to burn obviously thousands and thousands of hectares. While the bushfires started around August 2019, things became much worse by the time December came around. That's when Nathan remembers getting the first call. So I was, I had been watching the other fires around the state uh, for you know, an extended couple of months and had, had witnessed what had been fairly horrific fires in the northern parts of our state. And I'd, I'd seen towns, you know, almost wiped off the map. And, and you know, knowing that normally for, for me in my part of the state, the risk comes in, in sort of December, January, February. So as, it, as that, that time period came closer, it became very clear that we were going to experience the same sorts of fires that, that the other parts of the state had. And on the 30th of December, I uh, saw a lightning band that had come, uh, come through our part of the state and, and knew pretty quickly that that we were going to have a you know, a fairly bad few days at that point, I thought, but uh, what turned out to be a horrific three months. If you're wondering, what Nathan is describing here is a series of lightning storms, but there's no rain. So imagine flashes of lightning striking the dry ground and trees, igniting these fires. And they kept coming. December 30th, 2019 is when everything changed and a day Nathan will never forget. I was working my, uh, my normal day job at the time and, and like most people in Australia, I was very closely watching the, watching the news and watching uh, the websites for our, our fire agencies and I, I noticed the fire had started um, about three hours away from where I was currently working back in my hometown or near my hometown of Bega on the, on the state's south coast and I went through this process where I had a chat to my boss about the fact that these fires had started and, and they were looking quite bad and that I would probably need to go home and help help defend my community and help in particular you know defend my family who are living down there in that uh, in that community and so I got in my car and I left uh, left Canberra the nation's capital and headed uh, headed on down to the coast to assist in the firefighting effort yeah you know, on on the way down I uh, started to you know, see uh, see the fire particularly, which was known as the Werribee Fire at that time. Uh, I could see the column of smoke from quite a significant distance away, and I knew that it was 
yeah, it was not going to be a, a great day. So I, um, by the time I, I got down to Beaker, it was you know it was about three hours later. The um, the fire had taken some fairly significant runs to the southeast towards a number of our towns, and and we'd already at this point lost a few a few homes uh, from this particular fire. And sort of over the next you know, six hours, I, I began assisting in, in those firefighting efforts by taking on a one of our command functions, which uh, at the time I was known as a strike team leader. So I took a number of, of, uh, of our firefighting trucks and we sort of headed to get in front of the fire and, and try and steer that fire for as long as we could um, away from homes and, and from lives. But yeah, we were looking at conditions that meant putting out the fire was near impossible. So all we could do and the, the best thing that we could do was try and steer that fire you know, away from, from homes and lives. But you know, when you're fighting against Mother Nature, it's uh, unfortunately her that will win every time. A day later, on December 31st, Nathan received reports of a fire that was moving very quickly. And he said that was rare. Normally, when you look at forest fires, as, you know, as the sun goes down, as the temperature, the temperature drops and it gets humidity back in the air, you know, these fires tend to become a little bit more controllable. Now, unfortunately, what we were seeing on this particular day was that was not the case. Nathan says it was around 2 a.m. on New Year's Eve. The air temperature began to rise. By 2.30 a.m., we were looking at 38 degrees Celsius, and um, we were looking at humidities that had dropped down into you know, single-digit percentages. So essentially, at 2 in the morning, it was the same sort of temperature and conditions as what we would experience in, uh, you know, on the worst fire day in the, in the afternoon. And so we were fighting a fire suddenly at night with the same intensity that we would have been fighting during the day. And this particular fire um, had started to do what we call spotting, so the fire itself had started new fires ahead of itself when, uh, when embers and burning material were carried on, that, on the wind ahead of the fire. And sort of before we knew it, this, this particular fire had, been, had grown to a level that was, was well and truly out of our capability to, uh, to put out uh, with the resources that we had. By 6 a.m., Nathan was defending Kwama, a small town about 30 kilometers away from his hometown of Bega. He says homes in the area had already been lost. Land had been swallowed up by the fire. This fire was so strong that Nathan and the rest of the team made the decision to move all of the residents into a local fire hall. And we put all of our firefighting trucks around that building and defended that building while the main fire front uh, hit out, hit the town. It was um, one of the most intense and horrific firefights I've ever ever experienced in my life and ever seen. And we were looking at you know fifty to sixty people who were sheltered in this station, whose lives were very much dependent on how well we defended them at this point. And and unfortunately for me, we're talking about a, a regional and, and rural community. So you've got the, the town itself, where a significant number of people. You know, live and, and we're sheltered. But then you've got all of these people who live on farming, you know, farming properties and isolated properties in the outskirts of town. And things were about to get worse. The fire line got closer to their defense lines. And at 7 a.m., Nathan said they received reports of people trapped in their homes on the outskirts of town. Uh, myself and a colleague, uh, John Gatliger, we Jumped in, in uh, we had 
basically at the time we'd, we'd run out of fire trucks. So the vehicle I had was like a normal car. It was a normal um, sort of four-wheel drive vehicle with no additional protection, no water to firefight. It was just a car that had some you know, some red and blue lights and, and some radios for me to do the sort of work that I was required to do. And we headed off through through the main fire front itself, which was one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life. So imagine you're driving, you're driving a car and it feels like you're driving blindfolded. You can't see more than a metre ahead of the vehicle. There's debris, there's rocks, there's you know, fire and embers and everything that you can possibly think of being just whipped at the side of your vehicle. So it sounds like you're being you know, um, pummeled with, you know, with, with a consistent barrage of rocks and debris and and, and you know, and everything is is burning. Your skin is is on fire from the heat coming through the windows, and your lungs are are just filling with with smoke that's getting inside the vehicle. And you're trying to then drive through all of this to find your way to people. And yeah, for me, that the really challenging thing and the thing that made a, made John and I go through that process was that the initial report we received was for a family of seven who were trapped inside their home and that the home was on fire. And of that seven, five were children under the age of 15. And, uh, yeah, the moment that you heard kids were trapped in that situation, you would you would do everything you possibly could to to get to them and rescue them. So we fortunately arrived at the property and, and found the house on fire and um, and with no one in sight. And when we, when we managed to open the door, you know, we cl- um, my colleague John climbed over the, the burning veranda and we opened the door and found... Uh, found the family of seven huddled under a blanket inside the house with three quarters of the house on fire, and so we started grabbing kids and we we threw all of them, including you know the um, the two adults and the five kids inside the the car that I had, and we tried to drive them back out. So we had nine yeah nine people in a five seater car and and had to turn around and drive back through this fire front to uh, to get them to safety. And fortunately, we did. That day, in total, Nathan and his colleague John saved 13 people from certain death. Seven were from the same family. The pair brought everyone back to the fire station. I asked him what those moments felt like. I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't scared. I was scared for most of this night. You know, we were looking at conditions that I had never experienced and, and never experienced at that time of the night. That's not the sort of thing that we're, we, you know, we are used to having. And, and look, you know, there were times where, where John and I were certain we were going to die. You know, we were trapped inside our vehicle. Everything is on fire. There's nowhere to go. You know, the, the check engine light on our vehicle had come on. The engine was, you know, was just struggling to keep moving. And, and, you know, I kept thinking to myself, if, if I stall this car, then we're all dead. And and it's a really, you know, it's one thing on the way in when it's just John and I and we know that we made that decision and that's that's fine. But the moment you try and the moment we put all of those people in that car, they became my responsibility and driving that vehicle out was, you know, one of the most tense and what felt like the longest period of my life. I was terrified. You know, I had accepted the responsibility of those five children and those two adults. And if, if anything went wrong, you know, I I would either, you know, we would either all die together, or I would have to live with that. And it's you know, it's a, it's a scary moment. You you know, we're yeah, we're trained to deal with fire and to to understand that. But you've got to remember, we weren't in a fire truck. There was no you know, in Australia, our fire trucks are designed to have systems to protect you. We were just in a car. There was nothing additional to protect us, and that you know, that added an element of fear that I um 
now that I have to admit, was, was there. And it was definitely one of the most terrifying things I've ever done. Bringing the family to safety would normally be a moment to celebrate. And while there was some relief, it didn't last long. Nathan was about to receive devastating news. I had gone back into sort of the role of coordinating our firefighting resources and trying to defend the town from what was um, what was unfolding when one of my you know, my fire brigade that I'm part of, one of my members came and knocked on the window and said that I needed to go and see my dad. And so my dad had been firefighting uh, in this same town uh, with me and so had my younger brother and we, um, and I went and saw my dad and my dad was, you know, he was in, in tears and I, I asked him what was wrong and he, um, and he told me that Patrick and Robert had passed away. Nathan's uncle, Robert Solway, and his cousin, Patrick Solway, had been killed by the same fire. Yeah, in Australia, there's this strong culture of, of um, the stain and defending your property during, during a bushfire. And, and my, my cousin and uncle, they were, they were defending their property and their livelihood from fire as, as members of the public, just you know, out there doing, uh, doing everything they could to make sure that their livelihood was still, was still there at the end of this. And um, yeah, they were, uh, they were dairy farmers and they were farmers and they had, um, they had done, you know, Everything, everything right in regards to defending their property, and, and they had um, they had been, you know, well prepared and, and had done all of the work that I think we could have asked anyone to do under those circumstances. And unfortunately, the the conditions were just so horrific, and there were, you know, things that occurred from a weather perspective that, you know, I, I still don't even to this day understand fully. But but unfortunately, it led to them both uh, both passing away. So when I found out that my, um, my uncle and cousin had passed away, you know, I remember just kneeling in the middle of the road in tears and looking around and seeing the town burning around me. You know, the, the church was on fire, the, you know, a number of homes were on fire. And I remember just being so overwhelmed with, you know, with what, had, what I'd just been told. And then about two minutes later, I just, you know, everything just snapped and I, I stood back up and, and I had a job to do and I got back to firefighting and we kept firefighting for another um, six or seven hours until the main, the main risk had, had died. Nathan's uncle and cousin were two of 33 people killed in the 2019 Australian bushfires. Inspector Ben Shepard said the impact of the fires were especially felt by those working on the front lines. Well, we, we saw three, four firefighters, sorry, uh, one only recently after investigation was found to have died in the light of duty. Um, uh, one of those uh, was that down on the south coast um, whilst trying to return to, to his fire brigade station was killed and overrun by fire. Um, another one, uh, Sam McPaul, down on the, the New South Wales uh, Victorian border uh, where it's believed now that during one of those pyrocumulus events um, something that, that may have been like a fire tornado actually picked up their, their um, eight to ten ton truck and tipped it on its head. Our other two gentlemen that were killed uh, just south of Sydney by a falling tree that fell uh, into the path of their vehicle. But we've also um, saw a loss of three US uh, aviators that were killed when their uh, water bombing Hercules crashed whilst fighting a fire in the south of New South Wales. So, look, the impact was huge um, to the service. Um, Unbelievably as well that, that 
with all that, we also saw many of our volunteers lose homes. Some 80 to 90 of our firefighters lost their homes whilst they were out fighting fires. We saw uh, an impact to those firefighters. More than 480 of our firefighters had some kind of impact on their property, and that's either you know, loss of fencing or stock or, or, or machinery shed. So it was a, a massive impact on, on, on our service. Over the past year, the death toll is believed to have grown. A government inquiry estimates that an additional 445 people died from smoke inhalation as a result of the fires. Around 4,000 more were hospitalized. The bushfires caused significant devastation to precious land and wildlife as well. According to Australia's Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, more than 10 million hectares of land, which is about 100,000 square kilometers, was affected. To put that into perspective, Cuba is about 109,000 square kilometers. So what was burning in Australia was almost as big as the largest country in the Caribbean. Over 50% of the Gondwana rainforest was on fire. The subtropical rainforest is listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, in part because of its unique geological features and high number of rare and threatened rainforest species that are of international significance for science and conservation. More than 330 threatened and migratory species were all in the path of the Australian bushfires. The World Wildlife Fund estimates the bushfires killed or displaced nearly 3 billion animals. Among them, 143 million mammals, 2.5 billion reptiles, 180 million birds, and 51 million frogs. The rescue group Wires receives up to 1,000 help requests a day, treating severely burned brushtail possums, kangaroos with burned feet, koalas in need of care, and flying foxes pushed out of their habitat. The animals that do survive will have lost their habitat, their homes, uh, food, um, areas where they're breeding grounds. Those important areas have all been lost within the fires. It's devastating seeing the poor little koalas. It's really hard to see. As wildlife suffered, I remembered seeing the news of the fires make its way to Canadian headlines. One of the things I remember most were the koalas. They're native to Australia and live in eucalyptus forests. And as the fires raged, the little marsupials became the face of the devastation. To find out what happened to them, I reached out to Sue Ashton, the president of the Koala Conservation of Australia. With the only country in the world that has koalas and unless we do something to try and help help them they we will lose them and that would be a travesty for Australia and for the world. Sue works out of the Port Macquarie Koala Hospital which cares for sick and injured koalas and she says that 2019 wreaked havoc on the population and it was almost like the area was ringed by fire and uh, we were getting koalas in from our local area, but from across the state as well, and we were caring for them. So the bush was very 
burnt and dry and brittle and so it burned very quickly and um, poor old koalas didn't have a chance to escape or other wildlife as well because what happens in a fire is a koala climbs to the top of the tree and depending on the intensity of the fire it can go through really quickly and just singe their fur but in the case of the fires in 2019-20 they were so intense a lot of our wildlife and particularly the koalas were incinerated. Sue said that it's estimated that about 8,000 koalas were lost because of the bushfires, almost 1,000 of which were in Port Macquarie. Volunteers at the hospital worked tirelessly to care for 53 koalas who were severely burned. And what happens when a koala is burnt, the, the skin, it's very blackened and that it becomes dead. So we have to cut that skin off and then uh, treat it with a, a cream called flamazine. We have to clean the wound and then treat it and then bandage it. And those bandages need to be changed every three days initially because the wound is quite raw and then as it heals every four to five days. So we were doing that for week in, week out for probably three or four months. 13 of the 53 koalas rescued did not survive. 38 were released back into the wild in 2020 after they were nursed back to health. And Sue says two others, Baz and Gula, are still living at the koala hospital. Baz is a, he's just a, a survivor. He's the most beautiful koala. He has no claws and we didn't think he, we could ever release him because a, obviously a koala with no claws can't climb. But Baz, Baz has just amazed us. We put him into a big pre-release area with a tree with very thin branches and he's actually lose, using his little hands to pull himself up this tree. So if you go into the enclosure, you'll see Baz right up metres high in the tree as happy as can be so he's really confounded us um and the other little one is gula gula was little joey that i actually rescued and was brought in uh, well was in home care for a while he was only two kilograms and he had a really bad burn on his rump um we brought him into the hospital for an assessment for pre-release in april and sadly found that he had chlamydia uh, which he probably got from his mother so he's still undergoing treatment but he's looking okay his prognosis is still poor, but he's going okay. And if we can put the chlamydia into remission, he'll be able to be released. But they're the only two koalas we've still got from the fires. Hearing all of this definitely brought a smile to my face. I mean, I remember feeling really distressed about these animals. And I know I wasn't alone in all of this. During the fires, a, a member of the public suggested we set up a GoFundMe account because she had tried to donate to the hospital and our poor little website crashed and couldn't take the volume of inquiries we were getting. So we did set up a, a GoFundMe account and we had as a target $25,000, which was to build wildlife water drinking stations. That was what we thought we could do. We could get water out to wildlife that had survived quickly and at least that would help them. So we set the target at $25,000. Well, that fund reached $7.9 million, which was just amazing and so overwhelming. Sue says almost 8 
million was donated. I was floored. I asked Sue what the hospital did with all of that money. So we did the water, wildlife water drinking station program. We, we produced, made and distributed 140 drinking stations. That program has now finished. With the rest of the funds, we brought forward a five to 10 year goal, which was to start wild koala breeding. We're now in the process of final stages of engaging an architect to start building that facility. And we're going to build the world's first wild koala breeding program to try and rebuild the koala population that has been devastated by these bushfires. We're very hopeful that the breeding program will be successful. The Port Macquarie Koala Hospital wasn't the only one overwhelmed by donations. I did a little digging. The Red Cross received around $227 million in donations. That's gone to help people rebuild homes that were lost in the fire, supporting those who lost loved ones, among other things. The Wildlife Information Rescue and Education Service, also known as WIRES, received more than $90 million to help Native Australian wildlife. There were many organizations that were flooded by donations, and it didn't stop there. People stepped up and started their own fundraisers. On January 2nd, Australian comedian Celeste Barber created a fundraiser on Facebook. She wanted to raise money for the trustee for the New South Wales Rural Fire Service and Brigades Donations Fund. She set a goal for $30,000, but in the end... Over $51 million was raised. It was more than anyone could have ever dreamed of. And there was talk about dispersing funds to other organizations. But because Barber's original appeal was for the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, a judge ruled in May that the money could not be given to other charities. The judge said giving the funds to other charities would in fact breach the law around how trusts operate. The money could be used instead to help with counseling and support families of those firefighters killed while battling the bushfires. It wasn't just money that was pouring in. People traveled to Australia to help battle the blaze. Canadian firefighters are going in shifts that are about a month long. 51 are in Australia now. I think people have been really proud to be able to do the same for them. From what I hear, I'll be uh, up in the air bird dogging helicopters, bucketing, and uh, air tankers as an air attack supervisor down there. Craig Burley also works with the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, and he recalls meeting some people who came halfway across the world to help. We had uh, uh, guys and girls from both Canada and America. Uh, came across and, and helped on the Gospers Mountain fire, and uh, uh, the fire the fire family is a, is a is a is a large but small family as well. And the air operations manager, when he arrived at our incident control centre, I was there that afternoon and uh, introduced myself, and straight away we both had a mutual acquaintance that uh, <laughs> from Oregon. And, uh, yeah, you know Jerry? Yeah, I know Jerry. (laughs) So, yeah, so we had an instant rapport uh, and it was wonderful to have these people come over and give us a hand and they integrated straight into our system uh, relatively seamlessly uh, because we all work in a similar 
uh, incident control system, the ICS system, uh, and it was outstanding to have their help for sure. Uh, we really, really did appreciate it, and it took a, a lot of weight off us, gave us a little bit more breathing space to uh, to have a little bit of downtime. By February 2020, fire conditions in New South Wales began to improve. Inspector Ben Shepherd says that's when the area saw its first good soaking of rain since around March 2019. And that's when we saw the first significant rain uh, fall in parts of of, um, of New South Wales and uh, in particular coastal areas. But uh, there, there were some areas still on the far south coast that saw fire activity uh, right up until March. So um, it was an enormous I guess, fire season um, in its length and in its impact. But uh, fortunately, once we started to see uh, that that weather start to change, you know, it started to give us a little bit of reprieve. But, um, you know, we went from straight from that to uh, helping our sister agency, the State Emergency Service, with storms. Um, and, and that went for a number of, um, of weeks before we started to move into the COVID impact. So it, it's been a difficult year for New South Wales and, and I guess most of the world, but it was... Um, obviously started with the fires and um, and sort of still going with COVID. But even though the fires went away, the recovery is far from over. The Australian government says it will be investing $200 million for recovery of native animals, plants, and ecological communities. But I was curious. It's been just over a year since the bushfires burned through parts of the country We saw the photos with the ground, white from ash, areas that had once been green and lush, blackened, barren, and desolate. But that was then. And I wonder, what do the affected areas look like now? It's Look, the the scars are very much still there in many areas as well, up and around the Blue Mountains um, in the back end of Sydney here. Um, the trees are only just starting to reshoot, um, the, especially the eucalyptus trees, which are used to, to, to fire burning through. But in some areas, it burnt through so hot, so quickly. Uh, there is a lot of dead standing timber. Um, many areas, you know, are starting to rejuvenate and regenerate. Um, and it is, in many places, it, it is quite pretty to see as well, where you see those green shoots coming through and you are starting to see some of those native flowers because we've finally seen some rain, some good rain, and we're now moving, obviously, through our springtime and we're going to start to see these areas start to repair. Um, but, look, it's going to take some time in, in many of these areas. You know, It might t- well take a decade uh, from to return to even close to what they were um, prior to the fire. Thinking about these small improvements that have happened over the last year, I couldn't help but think, is it possible that Australia could see bushfires like this again? I asked Ben about this. Look, I think it's important to know that, especially in our continent, fires do occur each and every year. Um, there is no doubt, though, that we are seeing a lengthening uh, of our fire season um, and we are starting to see fires burn uh, in winter. Um, and with that obviously comes a responsibility for, for each of us to, to know and understand what that means to us, um, especially here in Australia. There will never be enough firefighters or, or planes or, or 
uh, aviation assistance for every single home here in this country. Um, and with that obviously comes an onus on the individual to ensure that they're adequately prepared, not just for fires, obviously, this next season or next uh, season, because we do know that slowly this will become an event in the past. Um, and we don't want people to forget that. We don't want people to, to just dismiss uh, fires and, and think that it won't ever happen to them because we will we will see fires like that again and we will see that, that broader impact. And uh, during those times, um, the community can't just look at the government agencies or, or, or fire agencies to provide all the support. It's going to take a combined effort of all of us to once again combat fires of that nature. A Royal Commission inquiry looked into the response to the bushfires. Over 80 recommendations were made in the final report that was released in October 2020. It covers ways to improve national response efforts, but it also touches on why we saw bushfires of this magnitude last year. We're living in longer, hotter, drier summers. Um, This is obviously affected by the broader changes in climate. The report says climate change has already increased the frequency and intensity of extreme weather and climate systems that influence natural hazards. Further global warming over the next two decades is inevitable. Floods and bushfires are expected to become more frequent and intense. It says these catastrophic fire conditions may become more common. So further preparations and changes need to be made. We just need to understand that it is part of our environment. Um, And we need to understand how to to better manage fire, how to better um, reduce fuels in the landscape through hazard reduction or the inclusion of things like cultural burning as well, a technique used by uh, Aboriginal landholders over thousands of years. We need to do the best that we can uh, to live with fire on this landscape and understand its broader impact, but also understand the positivities uh, around that fire burning uh, our bushland and and what it does to to regenerate and rejuvenate because we are fortunate here that we do have many national parks up and down our coast and and Sydney itself is surrounded by national parks and that that fortunately gives us some of the best air to, to breathe, but with it comes a risk and we need to understand that risk and help mitigate it. It's been just over a year since Nathan and his colleague John saved seven people from a burning home. And since that time, he's seen how they've recovered. I've been really lucky. I've been able to catch up with, you know, with the family since and I've tried to keep tabs and we've um, yeah, we've stayed in contact because yeah, like I said, surviving surviving that is one thing, but then Surviving the ongoing trauma of all all those elements of the things that occurred that night is another thing. And fortunately for me, part of that healing process has been able to be in touch and to to see them living their lives and continuing with you know what is something that you know if we had it been two minutes later wouldn't have wouldn't have potentially been you know, they wouldn't have been here anymore. And it is incredibly humbling, and it's taken a little bit of time to to understand. But you know, I will I will get to see the impact that those people have on our community going forward because of the things that we did that night. That's a really incredible feeling um, to, to know that, you know, to know that there are people on this planet who are still here because of something that you have done. It's, you know, it's quite a rewarding, a rewarding moment. Nathan says the whole experience has taken a toll on him. Either directly or indirectly, we lost firefighters in our state and people people either knew them or had 
you know, friends who knew them all. You know, you lose one of your organisation, it's like losing part of your own family. And so we had this toll that started to show on people. In some cases, immediately after the fires were over, and in other cases, over this last 11 months, as we've you know, progressed through a recovery process. And you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of our people, including myself, who are dealing with the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, who have had long sleepless nights or nights that have been riddled with you know, nightmares and flashbacks of the things that they experienced. And even just the physical toll of firefighting for that length of time on your body is, is remarkable. I, you know, I remember going and seeing a massage therapist six months after the fire and when they touched my back I was in tears because I had just not done anything about it since. You know, it, it's, it's an incredible thing to, um, to see the effects that this sort of you know, disaster has had on our, on our people but on the community broader. Following the bushfires, Nathan says some volunteers had to walk away from their work with the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. And that's expected, you know, after a major event like this. And But then on the other hand, we've had one of the largest influx of new volunteers that our organisation has ever had. You know, you have major fires and we always get a new influx of people. But the challenge we have now is maintaining those people as volunteers and, and moving them forward and training them to be ready for the next for the next event. The 2019 Australian bushfires changed Nathan's life and motivated him to make firefighting a full-time career. Losing my family to fire was one of the most horrific things that I have and I think I will ever experience and it has changed me as an individual and shaped me in ways that I, I can't really describe. But one of the things that I decided that I wanted to do and I wanted I wanted to make sure that nobody else ever has to go through what my family is going through. Losing your family to fire and losing family generally to any sort of disaster is, you know, it was an incredibly tough, tough thing for me to face. And if I can shape and help, you know, build an organisation that makes our community better prepared and more resilient and aware of the risks, then that's, that's what I would like to do to make sure that no one ever goes through that again. And Nathan is now doing just that. He's working on the New South Wales Rural Fire Service Community Engagement Team. In his role, he creates projects that will help with community preparedness so people can be ready for the next potentially devastating blaze. Thank you for joining me this week. And thank you to Nathan for sharing his incredible story with me. Whatever Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. A special thanks to Beatrice Politi, Network Managing Editor for Global News. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend about the show and help me share these stories by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're always looking for new stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much for listening. Hi. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.